Good morning, good morning. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. Hope you guys have a bulletin. I hope you have a Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you or beneath you. And we're going to jump into God's Word in just a moment. The renowned artist, Paul Gustave Doré, lost his passport while traveling in Europe. When he came to a border crossing, he explained his predicament to one of the guards. Giving his name to the official, Doré hoped he would be recognized and allowed to pass. The guard, however, said that many people attempted to cross the border by claiming to be persons they were not. Doré insisted that he was the man he claimed to be. All right, said the official. We'll give you a test, and if you pass it, we'll allow you to go through. Handing him a pencil and a sheet of paper, he told the artist to sketch several peasants standing nearby. Dory did it so quickly and skillfully that the guard was convinced he was indeed who he claimed to be because his work confirmed his word. Good morning. Excited to be with you. Excited to open God's word. And we have been going through this series called Growing into the Likeness of Jesus Together. It is a vision series to help us as Church of the Valley understand why do we come and do this? Why do we exist? Why do we say we're part of a church? And I want to make clear that we are not here to, to play. We're here to worship our one true King, Jesus Christ. And so last week we started this vision series, but really the idea was not to just tell you what it is or remind you, because we talk about growing in the likeness of Jesus all the time, but the goal was to actually give you handles and practical ways in which this can take place. We discussed last week in particular how the Lord draws us, and He tends to draw us by uh, having people proclaim who Jesus is and by us hearing about it. That's either through a sermon or a personal relationship, maybe through social media, maybe it was through a track. But ultimately, people hear about Jesus from somewhere, which will start the process of having the opportunity to become a new creation, regenerate, and born again in Christ Jesus. And often, once we hear about Jesus, or sometimes even before we hear about Jesus, God's drawing us by having us be influenced by a group of Christians or by an individual Christian who's not afraid to bring up who Christ is. It is through these means that God often starts the process of drawing us to Himself. And once we receive Jesus and this message that Jesus paid the debt that we ought to pay, He lived the perfect life we couldn't. He died on the cross so we could have life, and He rose again, verifying He is who He says that He is. When we receive this message, we become a new creation. Not someone who's just a better version of themselves, not someone who's just cleaned themselves up, but brand new with a new heart, new priorities, and even a new outlook on life. Because you no longer live for yourself once you're in Christ Jesus, but you live for Christ who gave you your new life in Him. So with a new creation comes a new identity. And it is this new identity that affirms and confirms our new creation. And our identity, or rather what we get our identity from, is possibly the most important thing you and I can understand when it comes to the gospel. Becoming a Christian is less about what we get and more about who we get. And when we are found in Christ, that starts to change things. And our identity and what we are known for is really the evidence of our lifestyle and what we worship. So I want you to think about this for a second. Like I said at the beginning, we come in here with a bunch of distractions, but this message in particular, I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to be distracted. I don't want you to think about the things that you have to do tomorrow, because if you miss this message, Truly, you could miss all of it. 
So think about for a second what you are known for. Think about those who are closest to you, who know you. What would they say you, in particular, are known for? And now think about those that are acquaintances of you, maybe Facebook friends, but you've never spent time with them. You don't really know them. What would they say you are known for? If you are normal, you are probably known for what you do or what you've done in the past. We are usually remembered once we pass on from this life for what we have done. And we all have an epitaph, if you will, of our lives. But what would you like to be remembered for? Because what you answer that question with tends to be the, in, the identity in which you currently live in. Isaiah Thomas, not the current NBA star, but the former NBA star who played for the Pistons in the 80s and 90s, he's an NBA Hall of Famer. He says it this way, if all I'm remembered for is being a good basketball player, then I've done a bad job with the rest of my life. So what we spend most of our time, most of our energy, most of our brain power processing tends to be what matters most to us. So what do you think about most? You don't actually have to say it out loud, but I really want you to, to search your soul. Where is most of your time spent? What takes most of your energy in your life? <clears throat> we have an epidemic in society that believes that our identity can be found in things other than Jesus. Let me give you some examples. Many people think they can find their identity in their sexuality or in their political affiliation or their skin color or their heritage. But the only entity that is large enough to actually be someone's identity is a deity who died and rose again. And that's who we should, as Christians, find our identity from. So identity is so important simply because it tends to lead to idolatry when we find our identity in something other than Jesus. In Exodus chapter 20, you, we, uh, for those of you that were a part of the church plant, we went through the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, we walked through Moses leading the Israelites towards the Promised Land, but they took a couple of field trips. Coming out of Egypt, going towards the Promised Land, they didn't really have any law, and God allowed Moses to come up a mountain and get these two tablets, and he came down the mountain, and he had these two tablets, and the first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. See, here, this is not something that we should take, is that God decided that it's okay to have a plethora of gods as long as the one true God is first. This had to do with importance. So don't think first, think center. Is Jesus the center of your life? If you're answering honestly, you'd probably say sometimes, once in a while, or no. Is Jesus who you get your identity from? I want you to be able to wrestle with this because, man, what a waste of time to spend your life in church doing all the things you think you ought to do, thinking you're justified by those things rather than actually understanding that you're justified by Jesus and what he's accomplished through the perfect life, the cross, and the resurrection. So is Jesus who you get your identity from? John... <clears throat> There were multiple Johns in the New Testament especially, but in the book of John, we have an author who considered Jesus, who, or, well, he was very close to Jesus, but Jesus actually considered John like his BFF, that's best friend forever, for those of you that aren't sure. And John in particular was probably the closest of the disciples when it came to those who walked with Jesus. When Jesus was transfigured, John was there. 
When Jesus hung on the cross and was crucified, John was there, so much so that Jesus told him to watch over his own mother while he hung on the cross. John also records conversations that Jesus had that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't describe, probably because of Jesus' closeness with John. John saw things and was let in on things that the other disciples didn't see. But how did John refer to himself? Did he say, I? As he wrote the book of John, talking about himself, did he call himself, I? No. And I would contend the reason he didn't say, I, was because he knew the story wasn't about him. It's about Jesus. Did he say, John? No, that'd get incredibly confusing. It already was confusing as he talked about John the Baptist. Did he say, John, as if to speak in the third person? No, because that was not the literary contextual way of describing things. So how did John refer to himself? Let's hear it, Bible scholars. What did John call himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. So did he call himself that because he has an ego? Does he call himself that because he wants to show off how close he is to Jesus? Kind of. But ultimately, he called himself that because he fully got his identity from the fact that Jesus loved him. And there is not a person in this room that Christ does not love. But have you received the grace that he's given you? Have you actually understood that the fact that John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved meant that his life was about Jesus? So with that revelation, who or what do you get your identity from? Be honest with yourself. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and say this, you know, like, at least not yet. But be honest with yourself. Some of you may actually in this moment be thinking, ah, Tim, that's for like the super Christians. Yeah, you're half right. That's for Christians. You don't have to be a marine Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a little Christ. That's what Christian means. You show off who Jesus is because you find your identity in him. When we are redeemed by Christ, Christians, making our lives about Christ is inevitable. It's not optional. Making our lives about Christ is inevitable. It's not optional. I'll be honest. When I first got saved, I was super excited about Jesus, but I was also super excited about me talking about Jesus. And it took time for God to start to pull away the things that were not of him. And he's still refining me. Hallelujah. So we're going to spend some time in Colossians. Colossians was a letter written by Paul, similar to the book we just studied, which was Ephesians, as we went through the entire book. But we're going to be in Colossians. And this book is written to a church in Colossae, which is the city that Colossians is. And Paul writes against a heresy known as Gnosticism, and we've talked about Gnosticism before, but it is this idea that God is good, but all of matter is bad. And so Gnostics would believe Jesus rose, but not physically, they believe he rose spiritually, and so that's why John, specifically, when he writes the book of John, talks about them eating and touching and being around Jesus. And so Paul's going to be writing against Gnosticism as well. And Gnostics, again, believe that that God was good, but they believe Jesus was a created being and he was made of matter, so obviously he was bad, but Jesus wasn't created. And that's why Paul in the first chapter of Colossians spends a bunch of time making very clear Jesus has always been, he's supreme over everything, and that everything that has ever been has been made for, through, and by Jesus. But in chapter 3, Paul addresses more of what it means for the true Christian 
who has become a new creation, who has been born again. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to be here for a bit. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, you have been raised with Christ. As we studied in Ephesians chapter 2 in the, the series we did before, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 verses two and, or, uh, 4, 5, and 6, where when the Lord looks at his children, he sees his son. And that is such good news for someone like me who is sinful, that when the Father looks at me, he sees his son. So we have been raised up with Christ in position. That we are a co-heir with Christ, big brother Jesus. We are with him. Hallelujah. But we've also been raised up with Christ in the resurrection, which means we are in eternal communion with God the Father through God the Son. The term raised, or we could translate it, since you have been raised, this term really describes a co-resurrection. It means we were resurrected with Christ. And we have spiritually entered into the work of Christ, his perfect life lived that we can't live, his death that we ought to die, and the resurrection which he did, and we get to be co-resurrected with him, which makes you and I a new creation if we've received this good news. And we become regenerate. We are considered born again. And we are then made alive in Christ, which means we start to understand his word. We start to look at the Word of God not as a history book, not only not as a textbook, but as the living, active words of God. That's why I say very often, these are the very words of God written down so we could know our God. So we are made alive in Christ, and we start to understand this a little bit better, and we start to be convicted by the Holy Spirit who resides in us, and then we have the opportunity to be more like Christ progressively. And that is evidenced by the word coming alive. So if you want to know if your identity is in Christ, how do you see this book? Does the word of God matter to you, or is it just another book that's on the shelf? When I became a Christian, I was annoying, pretty, hey, nice to meet you, so Jesus, like that was me, all right? And I, but I did start to care what God had to say through his word. I started to care more what God said than what celebrities said. You tracking? I even started to care more about what God said than my own earthly wisdom. And I started to think biblically over time. I started to read the Bible in a way that I had never read it before. And it was in this book that became not only my roadmap in a sense that I wanted to become more like Christ, but this also became the compass and the barometer to understand how to do so because the Word is living and active. Verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Whoops. Having your identity in Christ means your focus is on the eternal rather than the temporal. And I get it. We're in this room. There are things going on outside this room. There are things we're going to have to deal with Monday morning. But finding your identity in Christ is to understand that the eternal is so much longer and more important than the temporal. When you're a Christian you know that this isn't the only life that you get. You know it. You know that you're good because you've been saved by Christ. Circumstance doesn't dictate your relationship status. It's not complicated with the Lord. You know what I'm saying? 
You know what the best thing about being married for me is? It's okay, this will be PG, all right? You know what the best thing about being married for me is? I have a relationship that I know I can fail in. I have a relationship that I know I'm not always going to do things right, but I'm going to grow from and learn from the mistakes that I've done, and the great thing is my wife is not going anywhere. (sighs) Because our love for one another is not dictated by conditions but it is superseded by a commitment not just to each other but to God himself because I'm committed to her and she is committed to me. That's what it's like to find your identity in Christ. I don't have to impress my God. I don't have to do things to get him to love me more. He loved me perfectly on the cross. But I love him by obeying his commands and his commands are not burdensome, John says in 1 John 5.3. And as I do, as I do the things that he says from the very words of God, the benefit is not that he loves me more. The benefit is that I grow to be more like him. And I'm committed to him, and he is committed to me. Verse 3, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. I want you to look at that. For you died. What did you die to? You died to your old self. You died to your sin. And now your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son. What is better than that? Because I know what I think. I know the things I ought to want to do and that I don't do. So I know the things I should do and the things I don't do, and yet God looks at me and he sees his son's sacrifice. But we have been hidden with Christ in God. We are united with our triune God through relationship with the son who gives us access to the father, and we are confirmed and affirmed by the Holy Spirit residing in us. So we're in this relationship with God that's not a far-off, deadbeat dad, but a God who's active, living in our lives, and leading us, and disciplining us. For those of you that think the gospel is simply Jesus died for your sins, you miss out on the much greater implications of being made new with a new identity that is founded, secured, and hidden in our God. Verse 4. And if you underline in your Bible, I'd underline these first few words. When Christ who is your life. Underline those words. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I love the sentence. When Christ who is your life. What a powerful statement. But I also want you to think about the question that every believer will have to wrestle with and have to face at some point. Has our belief in Christ produced our lives being about him. Because a lot of people say, hey, I believe, but it doesn't change anything. So does our belief in him produce in our lives being about Jesus? Or are you like many people that just add him to your life as an additive? See, many of us hear the invitation to follow Jesus as an offer for him to follow us. Tracking with that? We hear, hey, come follow Jesus, and we say, great, I'll take him with me. But Jesus being our lives and our identity and our Lord is is a much higher expectation than most of us are willing to acknowledge. Because if we did, we'd have to concede we don't love Jesus enough to make him central to our existence. 
I pray for this church body. We have multiple generations. We have people from a bunch of different places and a bunch of different heritages and a bunch of different priorities, and I pray that we as a church body, from the oldest to the youngest, would understand this because we don't want to just play church because my God don't play, but rather we want to be the church. Because being the church means that none of what we do on a Sunday morning is to exalt man. None of what we do is to exalt anything other than Christ and him crucified and resurrected. Everything we do is for that. And if you leave this place thinking, wow, that was powerful worship. Wow, that guy led worship with a bass. What? You know, like what? If you leave this place going, well, that pastor, I mean, he talks fast, but at least he was entertaining. If that's how you leave... I have not accomplished, we have not accomplished what we have set out to do, but you've also proven that you care more about you than the Lord. Because everything we do on a Sunday morning is not to make you feel better about yourself or less guilty about your sin, but to point you to the perfect one who, in contrast, shows us how much we need a perfect Savior to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So if we make the order of service or the volume of music or the instruments, the time of service, the candles, decor, or who gets to sing or talk in service, the point, we have outed ourselves as people who are either way less mature spiritually than we think or we're spiritually dead because we can't see the problem with making things about those things because we always have. Woo! All right. Usually when I preach like that, I'm not coming back the following week, but I plan to be here. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Nothing gives me, and I hope you, more confidence and hope and excitement than knowing because of what Christ has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension that we are made perfect in God's eyes. I have right standing before my perfect heavenly Father, not at all because of what I have done or earned or even kept once I received it, but entirely because of God's grace given to me and to you. So Christian, this is not all you get. Hallelujah. This life is but a mist. You have an eternity scheduled to celebrate and be with your God, and that should evoke worship in you and I, unless we don't really believe that, because we have either faked it or because we want to make this life and even the next about us. And I can promise you that if that's true, you have not received the gospel of grace, you have received the gospel of you. And if you are a Christian, there are a lot of things that come to mind that are expected of Christians. But don't Christians always want credit for stuff they're supposed to do? Well, I read my Bible this week. You're supposed to read your Bible. Well, I prayed. Good for you. I even gave. Good for you. These are things that are expected. Not because you have to, but this is what God's people do. But for many of us, we're hardened to the idea of mission. We're hardened to the idea of going and sharing our faith. We think, well, the pastor will do it. No, the pastor has the same amount of hours in the week that you do, and I may be good at sharing my faith because I've done it, but i got to pastor you too. And so I'm not out there just sharing my faith all day, and I don't expect you to just do that, but I expect you to be prepared with an answer 
as Peter said. And many of us have had our hearts hardened to this. We're apathetic to the mission. We are desensitized to this truth because we live in a world, a society, and a culture that is more concerned with pleasure and comfort than God's glory. That's why many of us who have gone on overseas mission trip, and later we will be affirming some missionaries who are there just on furlough for right now, but are living in Africa. That's why many of us who go on overseas mission trips We go to other areas where we see people that don't have what we have, and our heart breaks for them. And yet many of them have significantly more faith than you or I, because they don't have what we have, distracting them. And so our heart breaks for them because we want to pull them out of where they're thriving in faith, and we want to give them comfort. But God did not come to bring comfort to the comfortable, but grace to the sinners. So not only did John call himself the disciple whom Jesus loves, but we see in Scripture God changing people's name to signify a new identity and a new mission. So when God changed a person's name, he gave him a new name, but it usually gave him a new mission. God changed Abram's name to Abraham. He went from known as Abram, high father, to Abraham, father of the multitudes. And then he changed his wife's name, Sarai, which was my princess, to Sarah, which was the mother of nations. And we know from history that the descendants of Abraham and Sarah formed many nations. But here's the thing. God changes you when you come into contact with him. Your new identity is exposed by life change. It is exposed by new priorities. How many of you, if you don't mind, maybe became a Christian when you were 10 or younger? Can you raise your hand? Okay. Decent amount of you. Praise God for you. Praise God for probably parents that poured into you and loved you and pointed you towards Jesus. But here's the thing. Maybe you don't have this contrast of changed life because you're like, I don't even remember. I was four. But here's what I can guarantee you. If you're in Christ, you've grown spiritually. And if there is no life change over a period of time, then there is no truth that has been received. Life change isn't hidden. It's obvious. I could tell you stories upon stories of even just my staff since we've gotten here where I've seen life change happen in them. And if we're growing more into the likeness of Jesus, there comes a moment where our trajectory goes from death to life, and the evidence of that over time is spiritual growth. But this is only possible if you've been made a new creation and have been given a new identity rooted fully in Jesus. Setting out from Hamburg, Germany one day to give a concert in London, the world-renowned violinist Fritz Kreisler had an hour before his boat sailed away. He wandered into the music shop where the proprietor asked if he could look at the violin Kreisler was carrying. He then vanished and returned with two policemen cops, one of whom told the violinist, you are under arrest. What for, asked Chrysler. You have Fritz Chrysler's violin. I am Fritz Chrysler. You can't pull that on us, the police said. Come along to the station. As Chrysler's boat was sailing very soon, there was no time for prolonged explanations. So Chrysler asked for his violin and played a piece he was very well known for. Now are you satisfied, he asked. They were. Some people get offended by thinking that if you are someone, that there should be evidence. Some people get offended that you should actually have to prove 
with your identification. So let me ask you this question. Do you have proof of identification as a Christian? In freshman year, I was in uh, Mr. Z's class at Santa Clara High, and we were doing algebra. And boy, did I not like algebra, if I'm honest. And it showed that I should have been farther ahead my freshman year, but I'm just saying. So we're in algebra, and I could get the right answers, okay? I could get the right answers, but again, I was a freshman. I wasn't saved by grace through faith in Christ yet. I I didn't have a relationship. So you want to know how I often got the right answer? I cheated. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm in a church building. Why not confess, right? So I cheated. So I got the right answer. But you know what's so frustrating? The teacher wasn't okay with me just getting the right answer. What did they want? You got to show your work. Have you shown your work? Because it's really easy in the Christian faith to fake it. It's really easy to say I have the right answer. But have you shown your work? We can do all the things that the general consensus would deem Christian, but do we actually have works that are led by the Spirit of God that point people to Jesus and effectively help us and them grow in the fruit of the Spirit? Last week, we talked about Galatians 1, where Paul used some really harsh language for those who were propagating a false gospel. He said, to hell with you. He said, may God's wrath be upon you. And then he continues in verse 10, and he says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Well, you just offended most people, so probably not of human beings. Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach to you is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man. (laughs) try to share, share the gospel with Paul before he was converted, he'd kill you. Nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. See, evidence of your work not being in vain has to do with who you're trying to please. Are you trying to please God? Is your, is your conscience clear before the Lord's? Or are you trying to please man? said this a few months back, but one of the harsh, hardest things for me is when I make much of Jesus, others make much of me. And I don't want that. I want it to go to Jesus because he gave the gifts. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, there's this harsh text if you start to really look in what it says. And John has been writing about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. But then in verse 12, right before he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he says, yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That sounds awesome. Let's do an altar call. That's great. But then there's verse 13. How did this take place? Verse 13, children born not of natural descent. So just how many of you have grown up in a Christian home? That's not why you're a Christian. That's what that says. It's a common grace. It's a gift from the Lord to grow up in a family that loves the Lord. But sometimes, if we're honest, growing up in a Christian home makes it harder to come to Christ. Just putting that out there. So children born not of natural descent, you weren't born into your faith, nor of human decision. I'm just going to let that sit there for a second. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at John. 
nor of human decision. I hear it all the time. Well, I accepted Christ. No, you didn't. He accepted you. Nor of human decision. This wasn't your decision. This was God's plan. Or a husband's will, and in this context, that would mean the the patriarch of the family who was leading. No one could tell you to be a Christian, but born of God. That's how Paul received this. That's how life change took place. Not because he was born into a Christian family, he definitely wasn't, or even because it was his idea, it wasn't. And no one told him he had to, but he was born of God. Verse 13 of Galatians 1, Paul is describing his previous way of life. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Okay, you cannot earn your salvation. But hear me, if you could earn your salvation through passion, Paul would have. Unfortunately, his passion was not about making Jesus known as the Christ. His passion was to persecute the very church that made known that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism. This is before the Spirit of God. This is before God intervened. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul no longer saw his justification in his zealousness of earthly traditions but in the surety of knowing that he had been included in Christ as his identity. So I got a question for you. What are you passionate about? Are you passionate about making known that Jesus is the Christ? Or are you passionate about man-made traditions? Verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. I got away. Later, I returned to Damascus, and then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, and I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then, when I went to Syria and Sicily, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Paul has one of those stories that some of us are either jealous of or we just don't like because there was so much contrast, right? He was like 100 miles an hour this way, and all of a sudden God decided to make him go 100 miles an hour this way. And if we're honest, that's not most of our stories. But the point is that he was given a new identity. And there will always be contrast when we come to know Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian, said, you cannot be forgiven of your sins and stay the same. Think about that for a second. I always say it's impossible to meet Jesus and and not be changed, but it is impossible to actually have your sins forgiven and stay the same. So, pastor, what what do you expect of those who get their identity from Christ? This is it, all right? You take one note, here it is. What do I expect of you if you get your identity from Christ? That you pursue Jesus. That's it. 
Well, what does that look like? I don't know. It's different for every single one of us. I would assume that we read the Word of God and we do it. I would assume we have time of prayer. I would assume we share our faith. I'd assume we gather to worship the one true God, but ultimately we pursue Jesus Christ, not the one we made up in our minds, but the one in the Word. So we don't pursue traditions. We don't pursue a celestial, heavenly daddy that cults create, but we pursue the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God of the Bible, and he is the one we pray to, he is the one we serve, and he is the one we live for. I want to close with these words of Paul to the church in Corinth. Worship team, you can come on up, but please don't make me sound spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and Corinth was tore up. Corinth was out of their mind in a lot of ways. They were doing some stupid things. But he says this in chapter 2. He says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling, and my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Underline that if you're in there. A demonstration of the Spirit's power. I love that word. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We have a simple message that if we have truly come in contact with the Lord of Lords, He will be on our lips and He will be the filter for how and why we live. So I'm going to close with this illustration. Some of you have heard me share it before. Some of you haven't, but just think about this for a second. Imagine I was, I wasn't here when the service started. And Aaron and Jordan and others were kind of like, well, Tim's not here. I guess we're worship night, right? And so, or Stephen got up and talked because I know he wants to. And, and the service is starting to go. And then 15 minutes later, I run in and I look exactly like this. And as I run in, I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry. And I grab my microphone and I put it on and I'm like, oh, man, whoo, sorry. Open your Bibles. Man, very sorry. Hey, just so you guys know, what happened was I, I took the long way to church, even though I'm only a mile away, and I decided to jump on the freeway for some stupid reason. And I jump on the freeway on 101, and I get a flat tire. And after I get the flat tire, I'm changing the tire on my car, and, which is normal because I call AAA, but I'm changing the tire on my car, and I put it back on. I put all the lug nuts back on. And that's what it's called, right? Good. Thanks, Stephen. And, and I, I put it back on the car, and then as it's ready... I step out of the way after I've cleaned up the car, but I accidentally step onto the freeway, and a huge Mack truck comes and hits me. So now I'm here, but I'm ready to open God's Word, so open your Bibles and let's go. I look just like this. I think all of you at some point would probably go, he's lying or he's crazy. To be fair, right? Because I look fine. I'm not bloody. And usually when you get hit by a Mack truck, it hurts. <laughs> I assume. <laughs> but 
But there's this interesting thing that happens for Christians. We say we've received Jesus Christ as our Lord, that we've come in contact with the Alpha and Omega, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And we say we've come in contact with Him, but we don't look any different. When you come to know Jesus, He changes you. He transforms you. And you're not perfect right away, other than in God's eyes, but you are pursuing Him, which leads to progress, to look more and more like Jesus over time. And so we're going to respond in worship right now. And here's what I want you to do. All of you hopefully got a bulletin, and on that bulletin there was a post-it note on it, and in front of you there's probably a Church of the Valley pen, or maybe you brought your own, or it's behind you, or you can borrow someone's pen, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to think about what you get your identity from that isn't Jesus. Because if we're honest, there's always something biting for our allegiance in this world. It might be our sexuality. It might be what we used to do. But the Lord wants us to make him center. Center.